What's up, guys? Welcome back. I hope you're doing awesome. We are going to chat about something going on in our society, and specifically, we're going to relate it to the church, and that is the, the art of getting offended. Hey, guys, and welcome to another exciting episode of Your Life God's Word. Thanks for joining this time of relevant conversation and scriptural application, where we apply God's Word to the most important areas of life, God, family, and community. We pray this broadcast inspires, encourages, challenges, and blesses you in every way. So without further ado, let's dive right in to this week's episode. So as we go into this, obviously, most of the time we would not think of being offended um, or getting offended or having you know a chip on our shoulder because somebody offended us. None of us would r- normally think of that as something to uh, be celebrated. But as it turns out, you know, we we live in a very weird world. <laughs> Before we get into it, though. Please don't forget uh, podcast at breadbreakers.com if you have comments, questions, or you'd like to uh, get some more detailed information, another part, uh, go a little deeper on something we've already discussed or a sermon you heard on our uh, YouTube channel or something like that. Whatever it might be, uh, podcast at breadbreakers.com is the place to to go. Now, uh, this episode, it's kind of a special episode. Uh, we we generally try to put one episode a week out on, say, Tuesdays, but um, I, we, we definitely don't want to be relegated to, well, we only put one episode out a week. As the Lord leads or as there are needs that, that arise, we definitely will be putting more and more content out there. However, try to remember that Tuesday episode, that is a benchmark, that's something we really are trying to commit to. These are really just special, sporadic, they'll come out as necessary, as needed. Uh, and I, I do really think that this episode is highly needed in today's society. We, I don't know if you've noticed, or maybe you haven't quite put the, um, put the words to it, but we live in a, we live in a culture right now that is, I mean, it is very, very victim-centric. It's like, who is the greatest victim? Who, who's had the, the most horrible wrongs done to them? You know, let's give them the microphone, get them in the spotlight. You know, tell the world how you were victimized, how you were just, you know, um, you know you've got oppressors. And, you, and, it's, and it's kind of a weird, a weird scenario because we end up with, we end up almost with like competing victimhood, right? We've got... You know, this person over here is saying, well, I'm a victim, this happened to me, society doesn't like me, all this is against me. And then we got the person over here saying, no, I'm even more so. Like, you you need to be quiet. I'm even more of a victim. And then this other person over here pops up and says, you guys don't even know what you're talking about. Try living in my shoes. And it, what's really weird is, like, these people are in the spotlight, getting notoriety, you know, books written, money, fame, based on being a victim. Um... And, uh, you know, in some instances, when someone is, you know, has legitimately been truly victimized, obviously we want that to get out, especially, I mean, if a crime's been committed, (laughs) right? These kinds of things, obviously we want that to come out. We want 
people who are committing crimes to be punished, and we want people who have truly been victimized, as the most rational people would understand that that term, uh, we, we want them to have comfort and solace, and we, we want the church especially and people to, to help them, right? However, um, in today's society, it's, it's almost like, you know, th- there's no evidence that I've been victimized. There's, there's zero, you know, actual hard data here, but I'm a victim because I feel like a victim and therefore I am. And, and how dare you? You're just joining in the oppression if you question my status as a victim. Now, you might be thinking, oh, that's just, you know, some preacher over here doesn't know what he's talking about, uh, you know, but, 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 there's actually a, there's actually, there's a book out um, that, that talks about this, and uh, I believe it, it began as sort of a, uh, in the Journal of Comparative Sociology, uh, microaggression and moral cultures and this this kind of went expanded into into a book uh the name of the book is the rise of victimhood culture microaggressions safe spaces and the new culture wars it's a 2018 book by a sociologist by sociologists bradley campbell and jason manning now i've not actually read the book i just kind of looked at some summaries uh, as I was doing some research here, I mean, very just quick, because I'm going to quickly shift gears and get into the meat of this thing that I want to go through. But having an understanding of our culture and why this is important, I think, is, is good to help us frame frame the discussion. And what they basically come to in their book, um, I'm reading from just a quick little Wikipedia uh, summary of the points of the book. Uh, it says Campbell and Manning argue that it increases the incentive the incentive to publicize grievances injured and offended parties who might once have thrown a punch or filed a lawsuit now appeal for support on social media. Right, goes on and says according to Campbell and Manning, victimhood culture engenders competitive victimhood. So what are these what are these things saying? That there's there's actually an incentive in our culture to get out there in the spotlight and just let everyone know how you've been victimized. You know, if you've actually been victimized, right? Someone your your store was broken into, right? I mean, what should you do? I mean, you should you know go to the cops. Um, we should if it's a if it's a civil matter, then you know we should possibly consider a lawsuit, right? If if that's what's necessary, um. They apparently they argue different types of cultures. You know, back in the day when it was you know kind of the wild west, what did you do? Well, you had a duel, right? <laughs> it was like, I'll see you at high noon, right? Um, but in this kind of cultural atmosphere, um, we we're starting to develop a competitive victimhood, which is what I said, right? I'm more of a victim than you. Like you need to be quiet. You've got four things that are causing you to be a victim. Well, I've got seven. Right, and so now you're even more of a victim. So I need to shut up and listen to you because you've been more victimized, right? And the more of a victim that somebody is, right, somehow their voice is more pure. We should listen to what they say. We can see this throughout society that someone has been victimized by something, 
gone through something and now they're like the moral expert on all topics, right? Somebody sur- survived a, uh, a school shooting, horrible, terrible, but now we should be listening to this person's political views. Well, why? Well, because they're a victim. What? How does that make any sense? Then we get into all of this nonsense about like microaggressions, right? It's, it's some kind of aggression, but we have to call it micro because nobody can actually really see it. There's no hard data around it. Um, but you were some kind of an aggressor to me, <laughs> right? And I, I, you know, a couple of episodes ago, you can go check it out. I think when we, when we, uh, when we talked about, man, what was it that we were, we were talking about? I can't even remember what the, what the episode was now. Let me, let me think about this. It was, I think it was when we were talking about, um, Ahmad Arbery and, and, uh, you know, all the stuff going on with that. I think it was that one where we, we talked a little bit about the study that the studies that have been done and that, you know, the university out in California that actually came out with a pamphlet and a paper and talked about microaggressions. And one of them was, you know, when, when, when people say things like there's only one race, the human race, that, that that's actually, you see, it sounds like that's awesome. Yes, that's the ideal. Let's do away with racism by looking at ourselves and not even seeing color. And, and another of them was, I think specifically, it said like, I don't, when I look at people, I don't see color. Well, great. Isn't that what we want, a colorblind society? No, actually, that's a secret microaggression. And to say that I don't see color or I don't think there's different races, why don't we just look at the human race, those are actually closet racism. That You're actually a racist. And this is where we get to. Why do we get to such nonsense? Because we have a victim society. And so... You know, if our society starts moving more toward equality and things are pretty equal and things are pretty, you know, you're not, are you ever going to eliminate racism? I mean, how, right? I mean, human beings can sometimes harbor these types of things. Are you ever going to eliminate hate? How? I mean, we're human beings where people are going to hate, people are going to commit crimes, (laughs) you know, um, but when you get to a point where things are pretty good, there's pretty general equality and this kind of thing, right? Then you got to make up stuff if you want to be a victim. And this is what happens. It engenders a competitive victimhood environment, which then turns around and encourages people, really, not that they're, not, not that they're lying in, in the sense that, yes, they feel victimized, but there's no reality behind it. Okay. They're, what did they do to you? Well, they, 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 they well, I don't know. <laughs> what, what was done? What's wrong with this? Well, you know, it's kind of like people that are against, um, it's kind of like people that are against things like, uh, like, like completely, um, numerical standards for getting into a college or university. Let's just, let's not look at race. Let's not look at even their name. Let's just put a student ID number so that the people deciding whether you can come into our college, they don't even know your race. They don't even know your gender. They just know, here's your scores. Here's the five points that we look at or eight points or whatever it is. And some people are actually against that. Why? That doesn't make any sense. Or people that are like pro-affirmative action, right? Affirmative action is institutionalized racism, right? It's, or, or I say racism, it's, it's institutionalized ism. 
right? So if you say, no, I'm sorry, you're, you're way more qualified, but we have to hire this person over here because we need a certain number of, of, of diversity candidates. What? Like this Asian gets thrown out and this Hispanic gets put in or a white guy gets put in, right? Because, hey, you know, I mean, studies show that a lot of times when it comes to uh, test scores and IQ and stuff, the Asians top the list. So, you know, me as a Caucasian, it, it, if I go and I try to try to get into a college and I get ousted by a bunch of Asians who who scored better than me, but then the college says, no, I'm sorry, we need to let at least one white guy in. So you get booted even though your score's higher and we're going to let this white dude in. That is racism, right? So again, this is the culture that we are in. This is the culture that we are in. And I've, as I've said multiple times, I don't think it... I don't think that we should worry so much about the culture around us. We do need to worry about it. We should pray. We should we should seek God. We should uh, tackle things in the spirit. When there are spiritual forces at work pushing these things, we should certainly uh, push against them. I think through the scriptures and through just good old-fashioned logic and reason, we should uh, speak out and not be, you know mean-spirited or or just that person that's constantly going on about the same thing but but we you know again we should take a stand as a church but the place that we should really be monitoring is the church itself because i truly believe as the church goes so goes everything all right now when you go into the the scriptures you find that the world around them was very dark. The Roman, Greco, or Greco-Roman uh, world in which the, the church was kind of birthed, it was very dark, very bad, very horrible things going on, okay? But the church was birthed. They had a great revival. It was an incredible impact right in the middle of some of the worst times, darkest times in history. And so I think we should focus on the church and that should emanate outward uh, as God sees fit. Now, I want to st- I want to step way back here and look at the big picture. The big picture is Matthew sixteen eighteen and nineteen. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades or hell will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. What's the big picture? The big picture is the church. The big picture is what God is trying to do in the earth, his kingdom, and the institution in the earth that he has empowered to, to be his, his, his uh, focal point, his um, arbiter, his launching pad, right? His administrative wing in the earth. It is the church. That's the institution that he's established. And we find that... It doesn't matter what the opposing side does. It cannot stop what God wants to do through the church. Okay? The gates of hell can't overcome it, right? The, the strategies, the, uh, the dark demonic forces, they, it doesn't matter what battle plans they have. It doesn't matter what they try to do. The church cannot be overcome, Right? However, let's look at 2 Corinthians 2, 10 and 11. Paul says, If you forgive anyone, I also forgive him. And what I have forgiven, 
and, and what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. Why? Verse 11, 2 Corinthians 2, 11, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Other, other, other uh, versions of the Bible say we're not um, ignorant of his devices or things of that nature. But what's he saying? Wait a minute, Satan get an, Satan outwit us? I thought, I thought Satan can't overcome the church. I think this is an important aspect for us to understand. The church cannot be overthrown, overcome from outside. But it can crumble from within. It can crumble from within. So, you know, in Rome, I, I've heard it preached. I, I think it is true, and it, it is a powerful, uh, I'd say, exhortation to say things like, Rome could not burn the church out. Rome could not throw enough people into the Colosseum to stop what God wanted to do in the church. And they tried. There were, there were emperors who tried. The, there have been forces all throughout history that tried. Forget you know, way back in the Roman days, right? The, the underground church or the church in places where there's extreme or have been extreme persecution, places like Soviet Russia, Places like the Middle East today, China, um, the church might be underground. I mean, and it may not be as visible, but it is thriving in many of these places, even though there is severe persecution against it. And so the church cannot be overcome from outside. But church institutions, they can be destroyed from within. And one tool, there are, there are a few different tools. I think one of them is compromising, it, it compromise with the world, compromise with the strategies of, of hell, of Satan. Um, and we'll, maybe we'll talk about that at a different time. But, but this episode, I want to talk about offense. Offense. And is it any wonder, right, in our culture with, I mean, the person getting offended the most Victimhood, right? Now, again, when I said in the beginning about victimhood, I'm not talking about legitimate victims, somebody whose store was legitimately broken into, robbed, somebody who was, you know, legitimately beaten by a gang of thugs, you know, somebody who legitimately was victimized. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about victimhood culture where nothing really happened to you or somebody said something off color to you that, that stuff this like this happens all the time and yet you got to go out and make a Facebook page about it. Like, what? <laughs> you know, that's what I'm talking about. This can creep into the church, though, and it certainly has crept into the church, to where people sometimes are sitting on our, you know, in our congregations with this chip on their shoulder, just waiting to be offended, just waiting. How, just go ahead and say something that offends me. Go ahead and say something that rubs me the wrong way, so I can run out from here and talk about what a victim I am and how horrible it is in the church and how mean-spirited leaders are in the church and how, you know, uh, now again. Coming from the voice of someone who has, you know, again, I can get my story out there, <laughs> um, and I fully intend to one of these days, uh, you know, maybe do a book or something on this nature, but, but here we go, right? I have had legitimate, legitimate 
religious oppression against me, against my family, against people that I that I know. Um, legitimate abuse from leadership. Legitimate abuse. Okay, with I mean documented cases. I could tell you exactly what happened and what it was. Not like a somebody looked at me funny or somebody preached to a crowd of a thousand people, but I know they were talking to me. Like what? No, I'm I'm talking legitimate stuff. Okay. But even in that, I'm here to tell you, the church still needs leadership. It needs godly leadership, loving leadership, leadership that is also approachable, teachable, and subject to question. So, what is the deal? But if the, if the enemy can bring offense into the church, if the enemy can bring a stumbling block into the church because of... Uh, people doing wrong to one another or truly damaging one another, then he has he has won the victory. And indeed, as Paul says, I mean, he can outwit us or some, again, some versions get an advantage over us. He absolutely can. He can neutralize the plans, the destiny that God has for a specific local church or even the church at large in a nation, a state, the world. He can neutralize it, slow it down, you know, things like that because of crumbling from the inside. He can do nothing against a church that is walking in love and humility and unity and who are following Christ, that he can't really do much against that. Now, before we move too deeply into this, I do want to take a side note uh, and say, uh, when we talk about offense and offenses in the Word of God, most often we're not just talking about somebody getting their feelings hurt, okay? We're not just talking about, oh, you know, when the Bible, you read the Bible and you see words like offense or things of that nature, um, it's not usually meaning like, Somebody said something, and you you know you kind of got your feelings hurt. You know maybe they said it just a little too strong, or they you know they they um they used verses that just rub you the wrong way, or you know you had a bad day, and then they just kind of hit on that topic, and it just was the be- the wrong time for me to for me to have to hear that. It offended my sensibilities. It's not it's not talking about that most often, right? The uh, I'll, I'll look at the New Testament. Um, the uh, the words scandalizo, scandalon, uh, tayo, patayo, th- these words in the Greek um, that often are translated as offend or offense and these kinds of things um, are are stronger than that. Okay, they mean things like to trip up, to ensnare to entice to sin, to cause to stumble, okay, or to bring into error, uh, things like that. <laughs> so again, we have to be careful when we read verses about, see, 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 you're not supposed to offend. It, it, it's it, Most of the time, it's referring primarily to you, you shouldn't be causing someone to truly stumble in their walk with Christ, or you shouldn't be causing someone to go off into error and sin. Um, so I just want to make that make that point, and it will become obvious when we move into some of the scriptures that we're going to go into about offenses. Now, Luke 17 and 1 says, 
uh, Jesus said to his disciples, things that cause people to sin are bound to come. Now again, cause people to sin, that word in some translations is uh, uh, offense. So in some translations it says like offenses will come, right? Uh, and then it says, but woe to that person through whom they come. Now even that, see, forget about hurt feelings, like you know that's going to happen a lot, but uh, even things that might cause someone to truly stumble, it, they are going to happen. Things like that are going to happen. Jesus specifically called it out and told them to be on guard and realize this was the case. James chapter 3, verse 2 says, We all stumble in many ways. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check. So, again, this is where he's talking about you know the tongue and this kind of stuff. He, he's letting us know, listen, we're, there are times we say things, we, we should not have said that. Um, it's a wrong it's a wrong thing. We actually cause ourselves to stumble by what we say, or even cause others to stumble by what we say. And right, we, we need to be careful, mindful. We should not just be, well, y'all should just you know pray through. I'm just gonna be who I am. Oh, here we go. That's not how, how it is. But we are human. We're not perfect, okay? So, and again, keep in mind, offend does not necessarily mean hurt feelings, and it certainly doesn't mean, you know, I shouldn't be made uncomfortable, because I will tell you right now, I will tell you right now, the preaching of the Word of God is supposed to make people uncomfortable. It's supposed to make people, right, a little on edge, a, a little rubbed the wrong way. Mark 14, 27, you will all fall away, Jesus told them. That word fall away, right? Be offended. Um, For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. John 6, 60 and 61, on hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said, does this offend you? See, again, there's nothing in the scriptures that teach that we should water stuff down, water the message down. You know, every time you put together a Bible study or you're going to give an answer for something or someone or you're going to do some preaching or teaching or whatever, you should always water it down to the lowest common denominator and make sure that nobody gets any hurt feelings. That is literally impossible, because if you teach that adultery is wrong, you should not commit adultery. It is a sin before God. This is not something that Christians partake in. If you teach that, and someone sitting there is committing adultery, or is thinking about it, trying to figure out ways to rationalize and justify it, those people are going to be uncomfortable. Even if nobody sitting there, or, or whatever, knows about this in their heart, knows what they're doing, knows what they're planning, they're going to be offended, right? They're going to be uncomfortable. And so offense does not equal discomfort, okay? Romans 9, 32-33, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, see, I lay in Zion a stone that, check this out, causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. That word makes them fall. Many translations call it a r the rock of offense. 
and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. First uh, Peter 2 and 8 also um, quotes this from the Old Testament and, and makes reference to it. So Romans 9, 32, 33, um, and First Peter 2 and 8, right? This is, I mean, the, the, the rock, right? The preaching of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ himself is something that is going to make some people fall going to make some people get truly biblically offended, okay? Why? Because they don't want to turn to him. They, they want to continue, right, in, in their... They want, to conti- they want to continue in their sin, all right? They, they, they don't want to turn their lives and the lordship of their lives over to Jesus Christ. And and so again, the the preaching of the cross is not something that should be watered down in order to try to we shouldn't we shouldn't make people uncomfortable. That is literally impossible. You 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 are not actually going to be able to preach the cross effectively if you're also trying to make sure nobody is uncomfortable. And again, these verses show you that Jesus Christ, I mean the picture of the, the picture of love, the the picture of uh, 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 of what we should be striving to be, whereas none of us are going to be exactly like Jesus. He's Jesus. Right, God in the flesh, but we're supposed to strive to be like Him. He is "quote unquote" offensive. He is offensive. Why? Because of scriptures like John chapter three, John three nineteen and twenty, says this: "This is the verdict: Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of light. Why?" Because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Okay? So, the the issue is that people don't want to come into the light. And so, the preaching of the cross, the preaching of the cross is going to bring to light the darkness in us. And some of us will say, wow, I didn't realize, look at that, look at that. Didn't even know it was there. I did, but I, I didn't realize this was something that, that was not pleasing to my Lord and Savior. Now I'm going to change because I want to be pleasing to Him. There will be some people that say, I'm offended. I don't like that. And so again, we should never, ever, 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 water down the preaching and teaching of the Word of God because we are worried that someone is offended. Now, again, hurt feelings, things of this nature, we as Christians, right, shouldn't intentionally want to hurt someone's feelings. I mean, of course, you don't, you know, you you shouldn't want to preach something hard and harsh and crass and you know, step on a bunch of toes just to step on people's toes, all right? Um, but at the end of the day, right, that's going to happen naturally according to 
the scriptures. Now, if we go to a, a, a place in scripture like Proverbs chapter 18, um, we find, again, a, a word of sure wisdom. And, and I like these, a lot of times I like Proverbs and Psalms and the King James. It says, a brother offended is harder to be one than a strong city, and their contentions are like the bars of a castle. Right. Once somebody has been right offended, and this this really even goes to just the simple "you hurt my feelings, you made me uncomfortable" type of thing. Uh, I mean, this happens. It, it sometimes it's really hard to win that person over. Now, this is obvious in the church, and th- since the enemy knows that offenses and things of this nature. Um, can slow a church down, even grind it to a halt. He uses this to drive a wedge into the body of Christ. And this is why we need to be on guard and have our, well, I guess pun is intended, our offenses up, right? Not defense, right? I don't believe it's a, again, I do not believe this is a defensive mechanism. I believe it's an offensive mechanism. We proactively stop people getting offended before it can ever happen. How do we do that? How how should the church do that? I'm going to show you right here. 1 Corinthians 8.13 Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, right, or to be offended, depending on the translation, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause him to fall. So first and foremost, everything that we do should be done in love. Like I said, we shouldn't preach something intentionally, make it hard, make it hard, step on toes, you know, woo, set a fire up in here. I mean, you know, that's that that's going to come naturally by the fact that we're you're you're preaching the word to people that are possibly in darkness. Maybe not completely. Maybe they've been sitting on a church pew for decades, but now you're revealing something in them that needs to be brought to light, and Jesus wants to correct, and Jesus wants to help them to be more like him, right? It's just naturally going to happen. Our motivation, right, should be love, and we should, as according to Paul, even be willing that you wouldn't even eat meat ever again, right? He's talking about the meat offered to idols and all this stuff in 1 Corinthians 8. Um, if you if you know it's going to cause your brother to fall, that should be our attitude, right? Now, Matthew 5, 29 and 30 says, If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for the whole body to be thrown into hell. <laughs> and if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body and for your whole body to go into hell. Now again, if our attitude, I'm going to put this in perspective, right? If you're, now, he's not, Jesus obviously is not expecting that the, uh, that the early, that the church be a bunch of uh, one-eyed, one-handed, flying purple people eaters, okay? Uh, he's not expecting us all to be cyclopses walking around with, you know, with only one good hand. He's saying your attitude should be such that if you, your eye is really causing you a problem, that you should be willing to pluck that bad boy out, 
okay? So how much more so if our attitude, if we have a chip on our shoulder, we're constantly getting offended, we're constantly, you know, uh, taking these, you know, things of uncomfort or somebody saying something, somebody passed me by, somebody didn't call me when I was sick, somebody, we're con- our attitude is such that I'm constantly getting thrown a stumbling block by this, right? Our attitude should be, I got to change this about me. I have to not constantly be getting my feelings hurt. I have to constantly not be looking for, you know, the wrong in everything that somebody might have been saying, right? Maybe they look maybe they didn't shake your hand because they were uh they were unaware that you you wanted to shake hands or maybe they 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 shook your hand last Sunday and they were running off to somebody that was uh, you know, a visitor or who knows. There's tons of re- but people get offended over stuff like this. They didn't call me when I was when I was sick. Maybe they didn't know you were sick. No, they knew. Well, maybe maybe they it slipped their mind. Or I mean, it's it's unbelievable how often we can get I'll say biblically offended, meaning there's a stumbling block thrown on our way. We actually start to, you know, turn our attitude to a point where we are actually sinning, getting bitter and upset. Um so we're getting biblically offended because we were, you know, actually Technically, just upset, uncomfortable, right? Quote unquote, victimized. <laughs> uh, come on, we were slighted. Somebody said something and we took it wrong, or maybe we took it right and it just offended us, right? That's no. We we need to be willing to throw that off. I mean, if we're willing to throw our eye away, we should certainly be willing to throw our oversensitivity away. Mark 4.17, but since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Again, this word fall away is one that could be translated, they are offended, right, because of the gospel or whatnot. Um, So we need to, uh, persecution comes, or things come against us. We need to not be so easily thrown off. Matthew 6, 14 and 15. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. So forgiveness is massive, massive in this endeavor. Matthew 18, 34 through 35. In anger, his master turned to him, turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Now, of course, if you can go read all of Matthew 18, especially this portion, you'll see that the master had forgiven the servant, then finds out that the servant was unforgiving himself and took the debt that the master had forgiven and put it back on this unforgiving servant. So very strong. The, the Bible is very strong. Jesus is very strong that we are supposed to be forgiving. What, what does that mean? If somebody legitimately does us wrong, we should forgive them. Even if they don't ask for forgiveness, we should forgive. We should forgive. Um, so Matthew, let's go on to Matthew 18, 15 through 17. See, Jesus actually has a way that he prescribes handling problems between brothers and sisters in the church. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault, just between the two of you, right? 
not in the, in, the, in the spotlight, not on Facebook, not asking a brother and sister in the church to pray about, right, quote unquote, pray about this situation with me, not even run to an elder or a pastor just yet, right? But go just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if you won't listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So first go to him privately. Next, okay, now bring another brother or, or sister along. And, and, and it does kind of say, it does say witnesses. Um, you know, maybe there was something going on and, and, and there's something provable. You can see, you can lay out your case. Okay, uh, somebody just didn't call me. I feel upset. These are things that honestly probably should default back to the previous step. Forgive, let it go. Okay, but if you just can't, keeping you up at night, there's, then go to them. Hey, you know, I was really hurt or disappointed that you didn't come visit me when I was in the hospital. I was, I, you know, I, I posted on social media that, you know, I needed help with, uh, this uh, this this thing at my house that was going on and and you didn't show up or you didn't say it, you didn't comment or you didn't offer your services and you know that kind of hurt me uh, go and say that to somebody okay maybe the answer is just going to be you know I I saw that post and I just I didn't have time to to, to, to come this time I I, I, was, I had a lot going on a lot of family issues or I was out of town or I maybe I didn't even see the post I didn't even know okay but Work it out between you. And if, if you can't, right, then go to a brother or sister. But when you go to a brother or sister, when you bring a third party, you bring a couple of people, be ready for that person to listen to the both sides and possibly say, uh, actually, you're in the wrong, right? I can't get over this. This person didn't visit me in the hospital. And the person said, listen, dude, they visit a lot of people in the hospital. Uh, maybe they just couldn't get around to you. You need to get over this. Okay, you need to be ready for that kind of judgment. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Now, of course, he's talking about a legitimate sin against you. A lot of these things that we uh, hold and offenses, right, quote-unquote offenses, these things are just, they're not a, a biblical offense. They are just you got a little attitude over something that you really should have just shrugged off and prayed about and said, you know what, I just need to let this go. So so what does the Bible kind of prescribe, right? First and foremost, everything done in love and humility, right? If we're humble, it's really hard to get offended. Like, feelings hurt offended, I mean. Why? Because you already consider yourself a low estate, right? If you're in the hospital and somebody didn't visit you, and again, I don't know, you know, again, I, I honestly don't, I'm trying to think if I can think of an actually legitimate situation where this has happened. I'm, I'm, it's escaping me. So I'm just using this as an example, hypothetically, because I'm, I'm sure this happens, though. Right? Somebody's in the hospital, and they didn't get visited by somebody, or maybe anybody, or which, again, to me, the church should do a better job. We, sh we should want to, right? We should, ha we should want to. Um, we, as our, our church, right, I, I, I am very heavy... Uh, with this, and, and our church tries to have kind of a committee or a group of people that that are, you know, kind of mercy 
is is the is the is the gifting right and, and we try to hey somebody's in the hospital let's cook some meals somebody just came home from the hospital somebody had a baby somebody you know try somebody you know uh uh, fell off a ladder, broke their leg. Let's, let's 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 see if they need anything. Let's maybe cook some meals. Let's let's get some people to maybe visit that kind of thing. But you know what? No church is perfect, and no church is going to make sure and hit everybody according to the standard that they feel. Maybe somebody did visit, but it wasn't the person they wanted to visit, or it was it was only two people and not five, or you know whatever. And these kinds of things, if we're humble. We will not allow these things to attach to us. To us, we will we just pray. Listen, Jesus. I'm sure there's been many circumstances where I hurt somebody's feelings or did this, and I want them to forgive me, and I want forgiveness, and so therefore I will forgive, just like Jesus said to do. If we're walking in love and humility, it will eliminate 99 percent of most of the stuff. If we have the kind of attitude, I will not. I am going to do what I can not to offend or not to make my brother stumble and not to sin against them and not, you know, preferring our brother, right? If this is the attitude, um, then we will do so well and and eliminate most of the stuff offensively, right? Ahead of time, proactively. If your right eye causes you to sin, right? We're we're, we're so willing to throw off our bad attitude that we're not going to let stuff stick to us, right? Um... But then, right, because so that's the first thing, walking in love and humility, right, preferring our brothers, willing to go the extra mile to make sure that the kingdom continues forward. Love and humility, I believe, are the keys uh, for that. Uh, But second, forgiveness, right? We walk in humility. We are humble. We love people. But somebody legitimately did us wrong or somebody hurt our feelings. What do we do? Knee-jerk reaction should be forgive. Forgive them, right? What if they didn't ask? Well, uh, they didn't ask Jesus to forgive them. When they when they were murdering him on the cross, when they were throwing the nails in his hand, I, I didn't hear anybody saying, you know, forgive me. And I, yet I hear him saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Ooh, right? But we don't oh, want to be like Jesus, except that, right? <laughs> Even if they don't ask, forgive them. Forgive. So walk in humility and love, step one. Have an attitude of forgiveness, step two. Guess what that's going to do? That's going to really make it so that step three is so few and far between, you don't have this happen that often. And that is, go through Jesus' prescribed process to handle an issue. Go to them personally. Now, why would you go to them personally and not go, ta- you know, not go tattle to the pastor first? Because your whole point is not to prove you're right, it's not to show your victimhood status, it's not to get them to recant or, you know, fall on their face or fall on their sword. Oh, you're right, I was so bad. Your point is reconciliation. Your point is, I love this person, and yet I have this thing that I, I is between us, and I, I've got to make it right. This has got to be made right, so I've got to go to them and let's make it right. But then you go to them and they don't want to make it right. Or that you go to them and there's there's no reconciliation. So you bring somebody else with you, a, a brother, a sister in the church. I recommend, you know, someone like an elder or, you know, a recognize, someone recognized in the church as someone who is kingdom-minded, right? Knows the scriptures, loves you and that person, right? I wouldn't just grab any old person necessarily. 
maybe a, a, a pastor within the church, uh, like I said, an elder, a deacon, somebody that, <laughs> somebody that is, you know, in a position that both of you can agree this is an objective third party who can, who can handle this, right? Um, and that might be just a brother in the church that is, again, no recognized quote-unquote title, but both of you recognize this person as an objective, loving third party who's got God's mind and heart uh, and not leaning toward one or the other or just a fleshly, you know, carnal person. <laughs> um, and then if that doesn't work, take it before the greater body, the church, right? Um, and I'm going to tell you, most of the time, what's going to happen is these are going to get resolved long before you get, you get to that last state where you're booting somebody out of the church, you know, uh, treating them as a pagan or a tax collector. Now, I will I, one quick note before we end here, and that is notice that the Bible actually puts protections in in the word of God against the enemy being able to bog the church down with false accusations, right? Because if you think about it, right, if you've got leaders in the church, they're trying to hear from God, they're trying to, you know, push, um, they're trying to uh, take the church in a direction where the enemy is being, you know, decimated on all sides. They're taking the church, um, they're, they're leading in prayer, they're teaching in the Word, and they are just, I mean, they're just going, man. They're just ripping, and, and, and Satan hates it, and he's mad. What is one thing that he could do uh, to slow things down? Well, if he constantly brought, right, false accusations, false accusations against people, then he could, theoretically, slow things down because they get caught up in the administration of constantly addressing, constantly addressing false accusations. And wouldn't you believe it, God saw that one coming and actually put things in the Word of God to help deal with that. Ready to hear it from Scripture? Here we go. 1 Timothy 5, 19. Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses, okay? Now, then it goes on to say, those who sin are to be rebuked publicly so that others may take warning. Now, fire and brimstone, like hard-line authoritarian, you know, teachers, preachers, pastors, this kind of thing, they might take that verse 20 and try to say, well, you know, people who sin in the church should be rebuked publicly. That's not, uh, that, no, no, it's talking about elders who sin, right? So, at least that's my understanding of it. I'm definitely open for people to show me otherwise. But listen to what he says. Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it's brought by two or three witnesses. So, when it comes to church government, people in the governing of the church, we're not even supposed to entertain an accusation. Like, don't even listen to an accusation unless it's brought by at least two witnesses. Whoa! What are you saying? These people have some kind of special, uh, you know, special privileges? Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, you, I, I don't know. That may be a, you know, not a great way to phrase it. No, it's not really special privileges. It's that God does not want the progress 
the growth, the spiritual attack against the enemy, uh, the 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 uh, the governance of the kingdom of God. He doesn't want that stuff to be slowed down by a bunch of false accusations, a bunch of people getting their feelings hurt over nonsense or things like that. And so he says, if it's an elder of the church, which again, that's that's church government, right? Elders are the ones who are the the kind of the ruling body of a local church assembly, right? They're the ones who are you know governing again within Christ and all that, of course. And, and you know, there, there's I have a whole teaching on elders and deacons and these kinds of things, but but this is not just any old person, and it's not just some old dude in the church, okay? <laughs> This is someone recognized, and they fit the descriptions, you know, found in Timothy and Titus, the qualifications for an elder and all of that. But it does say, don't even entertain an accusation unless it's brought by two or three witnesses. Not hearsay from two or three people. Witnesses. Okay? And then it says, those who sin are to be rebuked publicly so that the others may take warning. So again, if an elder is shown to be in sin, that is such a bigger deal than someone just in the church that's sinning. Why? Because the elder is supposed to be that example. They are in a leadership position. They are governing the church, and then they've got this sin over here that they are you know, partaking in. They should be rebuked publicly so that others may take warning. So because of their higher, I'd say, state or position, they are actually open to even harsher judgment. And of course, this is borne out in other places in the Scripture. That I think it's James that says, right, not all should seek to be teachers. Why? Because it's tougher for them. <laughs> There's greater expectation. But given the fact that there's greater expectation, there's also a higher bar of two to three witnesses before you'll even entertain an accusation. Why? We can't have frivolous stuff coming and slowing down the governance and the leadership and the flow of what God has in his church. So God anticipated, I believe, I believe right here from Scripture, you can see God anticipated that the devil would try to use things like offense to slow down his work. And since God is so sovereign and so all-knowing, he said, I'm going I'm to let these people know how to handle these things within the church so that the church can continue to thrive and grow. And I will say, these things are all the more important and prevalent when we live in a society that literally glorifies people getting offended and blasting it out there in the spotlight and get a book deal and get on the news and why because I was offended I was a victim well can you prove it not really but I just I just feel that way so everybody should 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 just know that that's the truth because my feelings are true that can creep into the church, and I'm so glad that God had so much to say about this topic. Now, here, I'm gonna, in closing, I want to say this last scripture, Ephesians 4.32. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as 
in Christ, God forgave you. I promise you, if a church will try to live by, be kind and compassionate and forgiving. I promise you, we will be, on one hand, doing everything we can not to hurt, not to harm. Even, even, I don't, I mean, not intentionally making somebody uncomfortable, right? Um, though we must preach the truth in love. And on the other side, we will be doing everything we can not to be offended, not to be hurt, not to have our feelings hurt, not to... So you will have this constant both sides preferring their brother. And when things happen, we will just forgive one another. And when that's not enough, when that's there's an issue that truly needs to be addressed, we will use Jesus' prescribed method. Why? With the attitude of reconciliation, right? Let's run through it again. Love and humility, rule number one. Going to handle 90 95% or more of all the issues. Two, the idea of preferring your brother. Three, the understanding that I'm willing to throw anything off, anything, including my bad attitude, okay, including my sensibilities, I'm willing to throw them off for the sake of the cross and the sake of the kingdom, okay? Four, forgiveness is key. And five, using Matthew 18 as the way to handle prescribed problems between brothers and sisters in the Christ, in the Christ, <laughs> in the church, in Christ. The, these are pretty much surefire ways to avoid offense and problems and, and, and fires and church splits and wedges between brothers and sisters in the church. And I pray in the name of Jesus that we can implement these things in our walk, in our families, in our churches, so that the mission, the critical mission of the church, the kingdom of God, to destroy the work of the enemy, come against the gates of hell, I pray that that mission will continue to be successful in the name of Jesus Christ. God bless you. I hope this has, this has helped you. We look forward to talking with you in the next episode.